Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library podcast is brought to you in part by our amazing Patreon members. I want to give a special shout out to them for being a part of supporting the show. If you'd like to join and get solo episodes inside my writing process, as well as the chance to submit questions for special Q&A episodes, you can check it out and join at patreon.com slash secret library. As we're getting close to the halfway point in this season, I wanted to answer a question that some of you may be asking, which is, okay, it's really great to listen to all these episodes and learn all of this material, but how do we put this into practice? How do I move forward and use all of this material in my own writing life? Well, I'm so glad that you asked because starting in April, we're going to release the next draft course where I will be walking you through all of the tips, tricks, and resources from the season, as well as the inside scoop on how I've applied it in the revision of my own novel. If you would like to get notified when the course is first available, you can subscribe to footnotes at secretlibrarypodcast.com. Secret Library Podcast is brought to you in part by our incredibly supportive and generous Patreon members. So a shout out and a thank you to them. Learn how you can get solo episodes and exclusive Q&As for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash secret library. If you need a little help with your writing, you can book a complimentary 30-minute discovery session with me to learn more about coaching and working on your writing at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash consult. This is the Secret Library Podcast, and my guest this week is show veteran Sarah Selecki. She's the author of This Cake is for the Party and Radiant Shimmering Light. She's also the creator of the Sarah Selecki Writing School. Now, Sarah needs basically no introduction coming on this show. I've had people writing me already asking, is Sarah going to be on season two? So I know you're ready for this episode and you've been waiting for it. I need very little excuse to bring Sarah on this show. Every time we talk, I feel like I've been mainlining some sort of creative writing controlled substance. And this episode was definitely no exception. I was buzzing after we talked and well into the next day. So I'm delighted to share this episode with you and know you're going to get a ton out of it as always. So let's get right on to Sarah. You can get notes, links, and more information from this episode and sign up for footnotes, weekly letters about writing to your inbox at secretlibrarypodcast.com. So here we go with Sarah Selecki. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for coming back on. Hi. <laughs> hey. Nice hey. to be back. I know. It's my, my bedroom <laughs> voice greeting. Um, so obviously we have to continue our series because we've, we've gone through so many of these rounds and I just, you know. Where did we leave off? 
I think we, I mean, we talked about editing a bit. We talked about, you know, second draft. And then we talked about your book coming out and how you felt right before the book came out. I think that's where we were. (laughs) So now we've come full circle back to where you're revising again. Yes. I am revising a short story right now. Yes. I'm in the middle of a new, something new. Yeah. So I'm interested in how, how you get your mind around that process. Like, where are you when you get to the end of a draft? What do you know at the end of a draft? And then what questions are you asking and what are you trying to do when you're revising? Mm-hmm. Um, I always feel like, ah, done. <laughs> it's so disheartening because I always feel that way. I always feel, and it is, I've kind of like run out. It's like, it's like after doing a workout, you're done. And it doesn't mean you're finished working out forever. It just means like you've spent it all, you know, and after a, after a draft. So this, the version that I'm on right now is a later draft. So right now, the way, where my head is around it is enough, enough time has passed where I now know, and I've given it to some great readers and they've given me their feedback. And I now know that it needs more and that it's not done. And that I, that, and I got to go back in there and, and, um, mostly for me, it's for short stories when I'm writing short stories. Um, it used to be this way. And I can see that now that I'm starting up, uh, with some short fiction again, it's happening again this way as, (laughs) as per usual. So this might just be a habit for me. Um, when I go back in, it's the ending that needs more. It really needs the, the punch of the ending always needs to be ramped up for me and, um, pulled out and challenged and really like at the end of a short story, you want it to feel, you want it to have the impact almost that a novel would have on a reader, but in, you know, 20 or 30 pages or less. So, the endings for me are always where I'm going and enough time has passed that I know that I got to go back in, but I will say that right now, as we speak, (laughs) you asked about how I wrap my head around it. Um, I feel like, Oh, this is it. Like I'll just have to do a few tweaks to the end and then I'll be done. This is almost ready to send. I just, I thought I had it, (laughs) but I can see now that uh, I need a few more and I'll just sit down and work through this last draft and finish these few things and then I'll be done. And I think that that might just be, it might be true. It might not be true. I don't actually know for sure one way or the other, but I think the belief, the faith that, that that is the case might be how I wrap my head around something, uh, how I wrap my hand around the revision. I make it I make it seem manageable with some magical thinking and, (laughs) and, and it may very well be manageable. Like there's always the possibility. There's always the possibility that you pull out the winning ticket. Like that, that happens sometimes. So there's, there's always the possibility that you might be finished and you nailed it. And that, that's how I, it's not for sure that it's not the case. It's not for sure that I'm going to have to go back and do another 10 drafts at all. But also, I don't know for sure that this is the final one that's coming up. So I just tell myself it is so that I can sit down and finish it. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it's very much about mindset and optimism. <laughs> AKA lying to yourself? It's not lying. <laughs> well, it's, it's not it's, lying. It's, it's positive thinking. It's, it's believing 
It's optimism. You're right. I think it's optimism. I don't think you're lying to yourself if you believe it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it may be more like a little bit of healthy delusion. Like, like so many personality disorders based on this very <laughs> rule. <laughs> but I think it's true about writing in general. Like if we knew how much any particular piece of writing was going to require, would we bother? Yeah. Would you even start? No, no. I mean, that's like case in point is Alan Watts 90 day novel for me anyway. It was a five year novel that I wrote following a 90 day, a 90 day schedule. I did not write that draft in three months. I mean, over five years, if I counted what actually got like the thousand words a day of that time, yes, there was a draft that was created in 90 sections plus a whole bunch of other stops and starts and, you know, um, wrong, wrong turns, U-turns, cul-de-sacs, like a whole bunch of stuff happened in there. Um, had I, had I picked up the five year, writing the five-year novel? No, I have not picked up the five-year novel book. <laughs> you know, we could write writing the 12-year novel, writing the 15-year novel. Year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am, oh, yeah. I am always heartened, though, by Donna Tart, who I'm going to badly misquote, but then yeah. I, I think I got this secondhand, so I apologize to Donna Tart. But I think someone asked her in an interview, you know, why don't you write your books faster? Because obviously all of us want them. And she said, well, I tried writing them faster and I, I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy doing mm-hmm. it that way. So I'm always uh-huh. comforted by that. Yeah. Yeah. And someone once um, told me when I was back at the early stages of, of drafting and outlining radiant shimmering light before I knew what, that it was radiant shimmering light. And I was saying it was, it all takes so long. It's taking me so long. It's already, I was counting the years since my first book already and, and feeling ashamed by the time that was the years that were passing. And she just said, well, you might, you don't know what kind of writer you are. Like you might be a Marilyn Robinson. And, and so I looked back and thought, Oh, like how many years go between Marilyn's novels years too and no one would say that she's like a failed novelist (laughs) or that she's super lazy or or that she's lazy right yeah Yeah. right but then you know you look at margaret atwood and she pounds them out i mean does she have 50 books out now yeah certainly 45 yeah the thing that i think is the tricky part and and that is maybe in keeping with like what kind of writer you are. And this happens in both the drafting process as well as the revision process. And in some ways, even more in revision because it's fine tuning is just that you can't really figure out the anatomy of an aha. It's like, you don't know how quickly (laughs) that's going to come, you know? And it's like, okay, yeah, Mm -hmm. I can write a book in 90 days, but I don't know if I'm going to need three, four or five days staring off into a window, knowing why does this person do this? Why are Mm -hmm. they doing this? Mm -hmm. It's a terrible idea. I know just what you're talking about. I I do feel it's important to state it depends on what kind of writer you are because I feel like we all have these writers in our life in our lives, you know, projected or real who can just compartmentalize everything and like, you know, quote unquote bang something out in 90 days because they just do it. They sit down and do it anyway and they don't need that staring into space time or they don't appear to need it or maybe it happened, you know, all underground before they opened their notebook and open or opened their laptop and started typing. Who knows how those people work? I don't know. Um, but I, 
I so am with you on not knowing the anatomy of insight and what it's going to look like and how long it's going to take. And I was just this morning, this <laughs> metaphor, <laughs> I can tell whenever we talk, I always get these like crazy metaphors. I um, love it. But I was, I took a cutting from a mostera plant that I had last year that was growing out of its pot. And I put it in some water and it grew some roots. And, you know, a couple months ago I put it in, I repotted those, that little cutting and I've been just watching it. And it's been just like one single leaf. It's strong and it's green, but it doesn't appear to be doing anything. It's like, it's still just sitting in there. And this morning when I was watering it, I saw a tiny little new sprout coming up from the soil. And like, there's no, I, I thought, you know, there's no, there's no way for me to know that could have been dormant for a whole year and still very much a living plant, very much a part of my household, very much one of my house plants. Like I'm not going to give up on it, but it's not for me to force when the sprout decides to come up. It just, I just have to keep nurturing it and paying attention to it, you know, and knowing that it's alive and like, it's okay. <laughs> yes. Giving it the water, et cetera. And there's just no, I love that. Um, I love how you said it. There's no way to know the anatomy of an aha. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, yeah, you can't, uh, I think that it, I think you can, I'll back up and say you can force it. Like I could force it and something would get done. Um, but I feel like it's kind of disrespect where I'm at right now. I feel like that's a little disrespectful to the process and a little disrespectful to whatever mystery it is that I'm collaborating with to, make sure that it, that it sits within the scaffolding that I dictate is proper productive, um, process. And that's a choice that I'm just like, I'm okay that I've made that choice. And, you know, I'll tell my agent that and she'll say, okay, okay, Sarah, I'm glad to hear about your plant. (laughs) And I'm glad glad you're working so intuitively. Great. Um, that won't help me, but okay. You know, I've got other authors who are a little (laughs) bit more manageable. Um, but that's just who, that's who I am. That's who I am as a writer. And I, I think as the years go on and I see that, no, I can produce and I do produce and why I write is not in order to be productive why I write is in order to have this relationship with the mysterious. That's actually what drives me. That's the, that's the whole mystery. Without that, I'm, I'm bored. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like the job. It would be, it would become something else and not something that is so separate from everything else in my life that is about productivity. It totally runs on different rules. And therefore to, to hold it to the same kind of standard that I hold my, you know, my, my desire to have inbox zero or my, you know, schedule, my routine, my workout schedule or anything else that I want to, um, that I, that I want to hold to a certain standard. It's different from my writing because the nature of that work is different for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is what you're trying to figure out, at least for me, you know, in revision, it's like, you've got this foundation, you've got a structure, and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what makes this special? Yeah. And where are those living sprouts? So, you know, it, it, where are the places that are, that are alive and growing? And if this isn't finished yet, and it's not a piece of dead wood, (laughs) (laughs) 
then where are those sprouts and, um, and what can I do first of all, to see them and recognize them and feel them and then nurture them and give them what they need, which sometimes is a little push, you know, sometimes that's, that is what we're trying to figure out as writers is like how that collaboration works, even in revision. I, I do think that revision has a lot of the same energy that a first draft has. And I think we've talked about this before in one of our previous calls, mm-hmm. um, like people who love first drafts and people who love revisions. And I'm definitely someone who loves revisions because I'm like, Oh, it's all there, which is great. But remember we talked about the monster under the bed, like you shove oh, stuff. Yeah. On. Um, when you come back to it and you're in, let's say the final stages of revision, like even final, final, which is not where I'm at presently right now, but I know in the last stages of revising radiant shimmering light, it was very small, like small yet important tweaks. And it's, it became, uh, it, it became, it, it was work. It was definitely work. Like looking at the manuscript and when the manuscript came back from the editors being like, Ooh, okay, got to go through all these pages again. And it does have a feeling of like, Ooh, but like everything else in the writing process, including the first draft, if you go to it with a like, oof, it will feel heavy. And that's not what we're going for. We're going for that feeling of aliveness. We're going for the, the fresh green sprouts. So even in the final stages of revision, tuning into where, what is alive about your work is really, really important. And then it, and then it becomes less work always. Once you become, once you're like devoted to everything, all the living shoots and what's mysterious and magical about it or what feels alive to you or however, whatever language you want to use to describe that feeling of, of creative, um, activity, (laughs) then, then it becomes, then it becomes less work and more, um, something you get to do. Yeah. How do you stay connected to that at the the risk of taking this Mm -hmm. metaphor too far? I'm like, how do you keep your green, your green colored glasses on for the new life when you've been through a book so many times. Cause when I got through my draft, I mean, it was sort of the first start to finish draft for the story, but it was by no means the first draft for many sections of the story and getting to the end. I was like, Oh, I don't want to think about these people anymore. The fatigue is really real. You get that fatigue. I think it's like anything else. When you feel fatigue, recognize it as fatigue. So recognize that like your book is not boring. The, the, all that's happening is that you're fatigued. <laughs> so it feels the same, but it's not, it, and it can't be, you just have to kind of have some faith that you wouldn't have spent the amount of time that you had spent on something if it wasn't, if it didn't have your life energy in it. And, and just like, you know, there's a certain amount of just giving yourself the benefit of the doubt there and then rest. I think with, with rest and getting to a place of boredom and getting to a place of like, mm, I guess this is the putting it, this is the putting it away piece. And then, sorry, I'm already thinking like, but if you're on a deadline with publishing, which happens, mm-hmm. you can't really, you can't really afford that in the same way. So then let me see, what did I do? Cause I know, I know I was fatigued. Um, you know, during that time I had the, uh, the great fortune of, of being on a sabbatical with, with my school, with my company, I took a few months off, um, because I knew that this would be, I wanted to, I wanted to take the time that it took and I didn't know what it was going to be like or feel like. So I had time. And I think what I did during that time was just allow myself to do nothing 
else, but like nap and sleep (laughs) and go for long walks and then come back to it after, after feeling restored by sleep and rest. Um, when I'm rested enough, like when you're rested enough, things have, things have more glimmer, but if you're already feeling weighed down or like you've got a lot of obligations and this is another thing on your to-do list, the fatigue, it's an invitation for that fatigue. So rest, however you can find it. Like I know that I was really, I was lucky at that stage that I could do that, that I could take that time off. But if you're, if you're carving out time to write, then you can maybe also carve out time to rest and just give it, give it, um, call it revision, even though it's resting, call it part of your revision process so that you could feel like, you know, you've earned it, <laughs> which is always a problem. I don't know if it's a problem for other people, but I always, Oh yeah. Well, I think yeah. <laughs> feeling okay about it is definitely a problem, yeah. but actually, I mean, having read in the past year, Michael Walker's book, why we sleep. Uh, I yeah, wonder if there's book. something to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm now convinced that sleep will fix anything after reading that book. I'm like, you that just need to sleep so more. Yeah. 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 There's a new book that uh, just came out. We're still waiting for it to arrive in Canada called Why We Can't Sleep. <laughs> right. That's like the logical next step. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that a lot of stuff happens chemically in the brain that, you know, depending on where you situate yourself on the um, materialist to humanist sort of spectrum, to spiritualist spectrum, sleep affects. And uh, a lot of things that feel mysterious to me, like aha moments when things, when when disparate ideas connect, feels very mad. Metaphor always feels really magical to me. It feels like, oh, that's like a shock and surprise every time. Or if I'm reading something and it fits completely into the thing that something I've been wrestling with, with my writing. Those sorts of aha moments that are so crucial to me as a writer, I think that's really crucial to us as a writer. It's what we get to get to do or make, we get to make these connections so that we, we see the world, um, differently and we can then show our readers the world, um, differently because we have this observational, we, we spend time, uh, and we give ourselves over to that kind of detailed observation and connection making that, that I don't think it's easy to come by if you're not rested. I think that, um, I think sleep might have a lot to do with it. I have to look into that some more. I've been I too afraid too. to do um, because I don't sleep very well. Oh, often. me either. Me either. No, no. <laughs> so it, it like reading about how, I'll just leave it off at that. But. Yeah, no, it's, it, there is a certain amount of panic that book can instill if you're, if you've had a lot of insomnia in your life as yeah. I have. But naps are, naps are like so nutritious. Even yes. a five minute, 10 minute nap at your desk. I mean, I talk about this in the story intensive um, and the story course a lot. I really encourage people when you're at work, it's like you're, you're, things are firing, things are happening, connections are being made. You're, you're, you're changing the wiring in your brain as you're creating scenes that are embodied is like your, your whole body is at work, even though it's just your brain working. Cause you're sitting at the, at the desk and you're not actually, you know, drinking lemonade and running through a, a icy cold river or whatever it is that you're writing about in your scene. You know, that your, your physiological, 
um, if you're writing it from an embodied place, you're physiologically responding as though you're, as though you're there. This is what makes fiction so exciting and reading so exciting is that our brains can't tell the difference. So it makes sense that as you're creating this out of nothing, um, you need more, you need to sleep, you need to recover. Your brain needs to recover. Hence a nap. So good. So nutritious. Totally. All the geniuses nap. Every, all geniuses talk about napping. So. <laughs> if they don't like napping, they're not real geniuses. That's right. That's right. You heard it here first. <laughs> Secret library is all in for napping. I am definitely all in for napping. I got to say yeah. it's, yeah. I think you do. So, I mean, I think you get very tired and then I think you, you need to replenish. And I think that there are all kinds of ways that need to be replenished in order to have you know, your raw materials available for revision. So what raw materials do you like to have when -hmm. you're revising? Like, what are your tools? Um, same as, same as writing, same as writing a first draft. I, again, revision is a bit easier for me. So I feel like so much of it is already laid out for me because I, I've got it printed out in front of me. And, um, even if there's a wall that just, I can't seem to get over it, there's something there that's proving to me that it's get that it's that there's a way out because it's printed in front of me. I never believe like I just I just believe it. I just <laughs> when something's not yet out on the page, I, I have way more doubts um, personally. So raw materials that I need when I'm revising. Um, do you mean like tool? Tell me about your. Do you mean tools like what's actually on my desk, or do you mean like good sleep and account like a routine and a calendar and a good. I mean, all of it. I mean, I mean, everything, I mean, everything from like you, you've once talked about that you go through and lay everything out on a calendar. So you make sure you're not making it Wednesday three times in a row to, do you need to read more or differently when you're revising? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, you know what I do when I'm revising? Um, I definitely read differently and I take my, but I, I just did this yesterday too. <laughs> I take my story, I take my my book or my story in this case, out for a trip to the bookstore or the library, and I tell it, you can pick anything you want. Ooh. Like you have free reign. You can pick anything you want, any shelf, any I take nothing from you. It can be cheesy and trashy. It can be like encyclopedic. It can be about any topic, fiction or nonfiction. It can be anything. You tell me what you need and I'm going to take you shopping. And, um, and then with that, I don't know what happens to me. I think it's just like giving it over. It's some sort of mind trick that I do where instead of me thinking egotistically, um, I'm going to, I know what's best for you. This is going to help my writing. This is going to help. Cause I don't actually know. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm inviting, <laughs> I'm inviting someone else to help me someone being the un, unfinished story I'm writing perhaps. So for Radiant Shivering Light, before my final, um, not final, final draft, but like the second final, the final draft that I then showed the publisher and submitted to the publisher before the real, all the, the tinkering edits came after that. But before my final draft, I took Radiant Shimmering Light to the bookstore and I got, let's see if I can remember the five books that it bought. Oh my God, I'm so it excited. Bought, um, it bought My Brilliant Friends. By, mm. by Ferrante. It brought uh, Spinster, Kate Bullock, mm. uh, Vagina, Naomi Wolf, mm-hmm. and Overwhelmed by Brigitte Schult. And um, I brought the whole stack up. Funny, I brought the stack up to the bookseller 
and I was most excited by Spinster. That was like such a good book, Mm. such a good book. And so informed the second, all of those books informed the second draft, um, in ways that I couldn't have known had I not given it away. Like, had I not done that little, like workaround so that I didn't have to choose the books that I thought would be good for it, but I actually let it choose whatever it wanted. Cause I don't think I ever, I don't think I would have purchased overwhelmed for instance, which I thought was about like mothers and family and parenting. Um, and it is, but it isn't. Uh, and my brilliant friend, I was really resisting that, um, because I thought it would, I don't know. I just thought I shouldn't be reading my brilliant friend as I'm writing something about these two women and their friendship. I thought it would be too close. I don't know what I thought. Anyway, I would have gotten in the way of those purchases. I put the books up at the bookseller and she checked them all out. And when she came across Spencer, she was like, ooh, like she <laughs> was like, ooh, that doesn't look like a very good book. And I was like, actually, it's the one I'm most excited about. But um, yeah, so, so, uh, so taking reading differently, definitely. And um, I allow myself to read as much as I want when I'm revising because, well, I allow myself to read as much as I want anyway. Uh, it's, I always prioritize reading. But when you're revising, you can sort like, I think it's, I'm going to try to articulate this. Bear with me. I think something happens, uh, when there's a suspension in your thinking in like frontal lobe thinking and problem solving that just sort of suspends a little bit when you're reading someone else's work, it sort of like gives it a little training wheel or a little, like, I don't know, a tensor bandage. So it doesn't have to work so hard because you're reading someone else's finished work. And then in that suspension, I often, find answers to whatever craft questions I'm asking about my own work. When I give way, when I stop trying to solve the problem straight on, it's like a peripheral solving that comp- that rises up from the p- pages that I'm reading. And, you know, I'll say this too. So reading it just reminds me because it's the same kind of peripheral answering that rises up out of the side, like out of the periphery or out of the ether an, an insight will come. Um, when I put myself in a state of receptivity, I think that's the state that, that I'm in when reading, it's a thinking, but it's not a coming up with thoughts. It's a thinking while you're receiving someone else's good work or work <laughs> it depends yeah. on what you're reading. And the same thing happens when I go out into the forest and I've been doing this, um, with writers in my retreats recently, just bringing them out into the woods with a naturalist. So we go on a, we do a lot of writing in the morning and, and then I ask them like, what sorts of, pro- like write in your journal, what sorts of problems are you having? What, like whatever it is. So if, so the beginners were like, how often should I be writing? How long should it take me to write this story? And the more experienced writers are like, what point of view should I be using? How should I structure this book? Like I have all these drafts, how should I structure it? Like any kind of craft question, any kind of process question. And then we go out for a walk with a naturalist and he just, he doesn't, he knows we're writers, but beyond that, there's nothing. He just tells us about nature. Mm. <laughs> he just points stuff out. And, and because we're listening to the naturalist, it's that same state of receptivity, plus the benefit of being in the woods. It's just good to be out in the woods. And nature provides the same answers, those same insights that, um, that we're looking for. And it comes from this peripheral place. Like, oh, the, the Douglas fir, I see how the, like those branches became the trunk because it was injured. So all of those branches have now grown up 
to become the top of the tree, I totally see how I can turn this point of view into a multi-voiced narrative that becomes one story, for instance. Or um, the eagle, <laughs> this, is the, this is another great insight. An eagle, once it clasps something in its talons, it can't let go of them. <laughs> it can't like, it's a, it has a mechanism in its talons that won't let it open and close like opposed, like our opposable thumb and our hands do. Once it grabs it, it's a latch and then it has to rest on something again in order to drop it. And all day long, I think it's like one in 29 or one in 18. It's double digit. I'm going to say one in 18 because 29 does it, but I think it might be 29. One in 18 times an eagle actually catches something. So all day, it's just diving, diving, diving. Most of the time it doesn't catch anything. And then one in 18. So one of our writers was like, wow, you know, you go, <laughs> there's a lot. There's writing practice is about, it's not about catching the fish. It's about diving all day. Like that's, that's the work the what an eagle does all day, what a writer does all day. It's not about like fish, fish, fish all time. No. And you have to lock regardless of what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, be careful. (laughs) You got to land again. Make sure Mm -hmm. you land again before you start again. Yeah. Anything having to do with time, uh, nature is so good about giving us another perspective on time and productivity. Everything takes the time it takes and nothing is ever rushed and everything is perfect. (laughs) Nothing is growing too slowly in nature. Um, and we don't put that on it. So that's, that can just be reassuring in itself. So I guess, you know, I, yes, reading and, um, what's come to me more as a teaching tool I see now as I'm talking about it is, um, going out and going out in nature and just being the receptivity and understanding that the answers might not all come from your head. So it sounds like they probably won't, to be honest. Right. Right. Like that feeling that I was talking about at the beginning of the call where I'm like, and I'm done. That was what my head could do. You know, that's like, okay, I emptied it out. I used it all. I spent it. That's my head. Good work head. (laughs) Then I have to go to other sources and find it from outside of the place, outside of the place that did all, that did all it could, but I can receive it and I can understand it and I can write it down and I can like pay attention and, and use that, use that to help me try new things. Yeah. It's almost like the head writes the first draft. It's like, this is the idea of the story. This is what, what you think the story is about. And you get as much of that done as you can, but then, yeah, it's like, and yes, there it is. The end. Yeah. And it's like, nice, I mean, head, nice work head. Yes. Now we'll bring the, think, the other stuff yeah. in. Yeah. Although I would say for me, the, the bot, the head can't do that much in a first draft either. Cause I'm like, my head just doesn't, my head doesn't think I can do it. My head never thinks I can do it. Like, it's just like, I'm on, I'm, <laughs> I'm unprepared. I'm on unpre- like my head always tells me it's unprepared and I have to sit. To, that's for me, the act of going to practice is like not listening to my head in order mm-hmm. to write something that will turn into a first draft. And the head does have some work in thinking about it, but it's only, it's a smaller role than it wants to think. I, I think that there's like a, there's a sense to a story that emerges despite what the head thinks it's writing about. It's almost like you have to distract it. So the rest of yes. it can happen. Yes. Distract it while still respecting it. Huh. Writing is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> full of ridiculous paradoxes. 
It totally is. And I think, yeah, I feel like things like tracking how many words you get down and how many hours yes. you spend and yes. all that, that's like, so the head feels like it's, yep. it's, it's in the Total game. Head tricks. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a project. Give it something it, it can control. Yeah. Give it some weird research. Yeah. Weird research. I think that's probably why writers have all their rituals. I think that's a way I think that's like, okay, if we, <laughs> if we light this and do this and arrange this and sharpen these and sit here, <laughs> it's like the head making sure that everything's prepared when you really can write anywhere. Yeah. It's like, uh, I think it's a little bit like Zen meditation. That's so ritualistic. Like you step through a doorway with your left foot and you sit down yeah. in a certain way and turn around and then you get to meditate, but you bow to the room, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then they say, you know, the Zen is like, like bathing, you know, first you wash with it and then you wash off the soap. <laughs> so I think we have to wash off the head tricks too, eventually. Ha, huh, that's wonderful. Yeah, goals. Goals, yeah, goals. to just sit down and write the thing and everything's all there. That's, I think that's what we're shooting for in that, like, yeah. it's done, I did it, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah, that, feel, that feeling of like, oh God, I want to think about, I haven't heard of that. You have to wash off the soap. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, you feel gross if you left the soap on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not what it's about at all. You got to rinse that off. No, it's like scaffolding. The rinsing, yeah, it's like scaffolding, and the rinsing comes. The rinsing comes when you're in flow. I think so. All of those things like set you up so you can go somewhere, and then you forget about those things. You really do. In flow, it's like it becomes the work becomes the pleasure, and not even pleasure. Like it becomes the. It becomes what's most real. Like the most honest part of myself comes out, like an honest core self comes out when I, um, when I really dissolve into making something and, um, that can happen in revision just as much as it can happen in writing a list of words that start with the letter C as it can happen when piecing together little bits of something I don't quite understand into something that maybe makes a form. I think that once I get, once I cross that threshold and whatever, you know, bow and (laughs) whatever Zen practices or, you know, light the candle or set up my notebook just so, or put on the playlist that I've selected, all those things really fade away once I step through the threshold and somehow they, they show me where the threshold is. I use them, but it's not, it's not actually what's important. And I know that once you're in that state of flow, you feel that, you know, that, you know, that the candle you lit isn't really that important, but it helps show you where the gate is. I think it's, yeah, because it's like, you do what you have to do to get to the place where you can get the story down and when you can feel connected to the story. But (laughs) It's like we have all these judgments about what that's supposed to look like and what the ritual is supposed to look like. And we spend all this time obsessing about the ritual (laughs) Mm -hmm. as if, I mean, and I've said it, I've probably said it to every single client I've ever had is that nobody has ever picked up a book off a shelf in a bookstore and said, oh, I bet they wrote that in the notes section of their phone. Or (laughs) I bet she had to wear a kimono to write that first draft. It's like nobody knows. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the result. All that matters is, well, all that matters when you're reading it is the result. And all that matters to the person who's writing it is that they're writing it, I would say. 
Yeah. Getting to write it as the reward. Getting to write it as the reward. Yeah. So staying out of the result get, brings you the result. <laughs> I know. It's like we're starting another with... paradox. Now we're wandering <laughs> we around in the woods. We should make our own tea bags with these little things. <laughs> <laughs> writer's tea. It's like writer's koan to write the book. Yeah. I feel like, um, do you remember the movie <laughs> Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Yeah. You know when Paul Rudd is the, the surfing instructor <laughs> and he's like, do less, do less do less. And then, and then he doesn't get up at all. He's like, well, you have to do something. <laughs> it feels a little bit like that. It's like, yeah. don't consciously try to force it into, you know, it's like when you try to write don't a good it. book. Yeah. 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 This book is going to be I really know. good. I better make it really uh, good. Oh, there's something to be said for understanding how you feel when you're in the state of, uh, well, what do you want to call it? Like flow, some people call it flow, deep noticing. Um, just when it's happening. Yeah. When it's happening. Just know how, like, this is actually where meditation is quite helpful because you're paying attention to your thoughts and you're paying attention to how you feel. And just like having that, that creating a little gap between so that you can actually recognize it. And then knowing that if you don't feel that way, because it feels very, you feel at once at peace totally relaxed and calm. And at the same time, completely engaged and hyper-focused and watching. It's like, there's a paradox in your very state of being. You're serene, you're serene and yet you're hyper-focused. And that combination, like that's the golden combination for me. Anytime that I'm, that I get to be in that state, I know that my, my core is activated. Like my core self is like mm, lit up. And knowing what that feels like, means that if you're not feeling that way without, without judging yourself and getting like getting harsh about it, just know that you're on the wrong track. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to stop or give up or that you're not a good writer or that there's revision is going poorly. It just means that you're maybe not on the right. You haven't figured out the right, um, you haven't stepped through the gate yet and that's okay. It's totally fine. It's just like, um, it's like an appliance that hasn't been plugged into the wall yet. It's not going to work. Like a hairdryer is not a bad thing if it's not plugged in. It's not a bad hairdryer. It's just, it's not plugged into the wall. So it's not going to dry your hair. <laughs> that's no. all. Like, you bad hairdryer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ah, oh, that's it. I'm getting rid of this and ha hair dryer. I can't have a hairdryer in this house. This is why I can't have hair dryers because they never work. That's I'm going to shave my head. I don't get to have dry hair. <laughs> yeah. It's not the case. It's not the case. It's just, you have to figure out how to, what plugs, what plugs you in and, and where that comes from. I think practice is key. I think that's why the right everyday thing comes around because it's a lot easier. We do circle back to some of the same things that we've talked to before, but it's the same in revision as it is in first drafting, I think, is just the longer you step away from the fire, the cooler and cooler the fire gets until the coals stop smoldering. And then you have to light the fire again. And that's hard. And it doesn't feel like the fire is giving off a lot of heat because you still kind of get the kindling all together and it's smoking and it's just like, it's, um, it just feels a little gnarly at first. And, and that's why I think coming back day after day and understanding and like building up a habit and building up a practice is so helpful, not just for page count. It certainly is helpful for page count if you're writing a novel. Yes. Like to create content. Yes. But it's also just so that you can stay close to that state of mind. So you can 
so you can um, conjure that state of serenity slash focus more readily with practice because that's where that's where you do your best work really in revision or otherwise you know I think that's so important because I think that there is this it's like we've gotten half the message um Mm. I keep thinking about um bed knobs and broomsticks lately this is like the episode of weird metaphors um (laughs) I was talking about this the other day. People are like, Angela Lansbury, really? Uh, to which I say, yes, absolutely, <laughs> Angela Lansbury. <laughs> I know, I'm like, Angela Lansbury forever. Yeah. But in Bedknobs and Primstick, she's doing this witch correspondence course. And then it ends abruptly because the book has been torn in half and they've lost the last, through, last few pages. And they have to go find like the full spell so that it works. And I think that in some ways we've been given half the spell for writing practice in general, because people have gotten the message of write every day, write every day, write every day. But the purpose of it isn't to write something that's worth publishing every day. It's like Mm. you've said, it's to stay connected to how it feels to write something that's working and how it Mm -hmm. feels to write something that's not working. The point Mm -hmm. isn't that you have to, like, if you don't write something amazing every day that you're not doing a good job, it's just that you're in relationship to writing and you know what it feels like. That's the other half of the spell. Exactly. Exactly. What you said. (laughs) <laughs> all about Angela Lansbury <laughs> put a picture of her up on my writing in my writing room I know oh, she's so good it's uh, yeah I think it's it's yeah it's why we do this and it's I agree it's like if you don't stay in connection you don't keep the fire stoked it is much harder and then you get a shovel out all the ashes and you get to yeah. start completely over and that's yeah. that takes work yeah, it takes work and um, it feels like a waste of time. So it can be very painful if you're already feeling um, the productivity, that productivity. Like if you're not already staying out of the results, if that's already something that your inner critic or your resistance is up in arms about doing the cleaning out the ashes and stoking the fire can feel like it can really feed those voices. Um, it's a dangerous place. It's just like, you're more vulnerable. You're more vulnerable when, uh, when the fire, when the coal stops smoldering, it gives, it, it makes you more vulnerable to the things that get in your way. And I think the way that you keep it stoked, at least for me, is that you keep reading stuff that's inspiring and you keep writing something down. Uh Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's just like feeding the fire. Just keep blowing on it. Keep blowing on the coals, and um, flames pop up. <laughs> the metaphors, yes. <laughs> but the flames pop up. I think back to the tools that I need when I'm sitting down to revise. Yes, it's reading and being inspired by the reading. But sometimes, sometimes that feels uh, cold or like a block, or there's something. Sometimes it doesn't work, and then it's like yes, going outside and being receptive. Yes sleeping, um, taking naps, recognizing fatigue. Yes. There's also, you know, um, exercise, moving your body, getting out of your head. Like a lot of, right. I think we've talked about this before, but it's worth it. it, It's worth repeating that so many of us have really active minds. And as a result, I mean, maybe, maybe we've gone through an academic lifestyle, or maybe we've, um, 
been told growing up that we're the we're the writers of the family or we're the intellectuals or we're the smart ones, we're the book we're the book ones. There might be some sort of um, external and internal and or internal reward that we give ourselves for being intellectual and, and having all of these deep thoughts and like long talks with friends. <laughs> um, all really great, but the body needs to move and we sometimes distrust our bodies as, as really heady writers. We, we distrust, we distrust it. And I think that that does it, that does our writing a big disservice. So movement, (laughs) even just walking, I mean, just going to say that long walks, long walks in solitude, which means, um, uh, digital minimalism is a great book by Cal So good. So good. And he defines solitude as, as time spent without interruption from any other minds. So solitude, true solitude is not reading. It's not listening to podcasts or music. <laughs> it's not just being alone, but it's actually being alone with your thoughts. So going for a long walk without a podcast or not while talking to a friend, just actually going for a long walk with nothing except your thoughts. Um, things really tend to untangle and move forward, narratively speaking, while walking. I, I, I've found this, it's, it's really uncanny. And I think it has something to do, people have talked about this. I think like treaties have been written, writers oh, yeah. have written for ages, but something happens when you put one foot in front of the other, things move forward, things get solved, things work around, like you're moving through time and space as you go for a walk and something happens to the work, to the problems that you're solving or to the work that you're writing. Something can happen, narratively speaking. I always want to write things down after I go for a long walk because things come to me um, that wouldn't when I'm sitting. Yes. So yeah, that's another tool. It's a good one. (laughs) It's a good one. Well, I, I feel like we could talk for like three hours, as always. This is good. Yeah, I feel like we, this is a good one. I feel like we've got, I feel like we've got some, some cones out of it. Yeah, we got some cones. <laughs> Thank you for, for continuing the exploration with me. Of course, of course. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.